you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at the 30, uh, verse 30 through 52 uh, this morning. And the, uh, the title of the message today is Jesus the Problem Solver. So I don't know about you, but um, I have problems. And um, by the looks of some of you, you have problems. Um, we all have problems. We live in a world of problems. Some of us like problems. Some of us are creators of problems. Um, some of us love to do that. And other, but the reality is we live in a world full of problems. And we're going to talk about how Jesus uh, can be our problem solver this morning. So join with me in a word of prayer. Our dearly Father, thank you for allowing us to uh, live in a part of the world where we can openly worship you together as a family, as the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in our lives as we just sung. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us a new day. You're actually still in the business of creating. And today is a new day, and you've given it to us as a gift. Thank you, Lord, that we can open up the Word of God. And I pray, Lord, that as we open up this Word, that the words that flow out of my mouth would be your words, not mine. Anything that I say that's of me, let it be easily forgotten. Literally go in one ear and out the other. Uh, Let this be a rich time for us. Thank you, Lord, for this church and its pastor and its team and and just the community um, that it it has and how it cascades into not just this region but around the world. So, Lord, now as we we make our way through these verses, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak boldly to us, that our minds would be focused and not distracted. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1999, a gentleman by the name of Dave Snowden, no relation to the accused spy, was working for IBM, and he decided to categorize problems. And he came up with four categories for problems. First category is the simple problem. This is a known problem with known solutions. So you're faced with a problem, you're running out of gas in your car, you know how to solve the solution. I gotta stop and get gas. I'm running out of groceries in the refrigerator, I gotta go to the grocery store this afternoon, get some groceries. Easy. Known problem with a, for a, known, uh, with a known solution. The second one, if you're a note taker, is a complicated problem. This is a problem where there is a solution, you just don't know it. For example, you may have something wrong with your car. The air conditioning doesn't work. The transmission doesn't work. So you go, well, I've got to go to a mechanic to fix this problem. You break the glass on your iPhone and you don't know how to fix it, but you need to go to some place to replace the glass on your phone. So it's a problem that you know there's a solution. You just don't have access to that solution. The third is a complex problem. This is a problem that requires you to learn afterwards. So more of a hindsight kind of a situation. Um, Usually, perhaps you've been involved in that, where you have to go back and there's a problem, and you go back and say, what caused that problem? How can we fix that again? We're faced with a situation in South Florida right now where we had one of the condominiums just literally in the middle of the night came crumbling down. And everybody is trying to figure out what caused that problem. And there are, you know, all kinds of discussions, all kinds of investigations, the engineers together, but they will eventually come up with a conclusion that says, what caused that problem? Therefore, now let's fix it so it doesn't cause those other problems. But those are the kind of things, maybe in in your own personal life, maybe if you've gone through 
a divorce, or maybe you've gone through a bankruptcy, or maybe you grew up in a, in a difficult home, and you're able to look back and say, now that I know what I know, this is what caused that problem. That's the complex problem. Fourth, and not least, is the chaotic problem. This is a full-blown crisis where we're not even, we can't even really identify the problem. We're not even aware of what the solutions are. And perhaps you have been in, and are in one of those situations. So we have the simple problem, the complicated problem, the complex problem, and then what we call the chaotic problem. In some ways, you could argue that we as, a, as, as humankind in the last couple of years with this pandemic, we have been in a global crisis. Sometimes we go through economic crises where the, the, the problem is just full-blown crisis. And there's so many solutions, so many ideas, so many causes that we have to, you know, reconvene and come together. So today we want to talk about how Jesus, the problem solver, and we're going to look at a scene, a couple of scenes uh, where the disciples, and I'm going to call the disciples interns, because that uh, seems to translate better these days. So many times you think of disciples, you know, but you think of your work or you think of your ministry or you think of your community. And there might be these young men and women that are sort of growing up, walking in the shoes and the shadows of others. And so today we're going to look at Jesus and his interns and we're going to see that they're going to be faced with a couple of problems. And how do they face the problems versus how does Jesus face the problem? And we believe that Jesus is not just a good man and a prophet, but he truly is God. So Jesus is God. He's true man, true God. And so therefore, it opens up for us the opportunity to say, how do I translate this into my own life when I'm facing certain problems? Again, it might be a simple problem, it might be a chaotic problem or anywhere in between. You go, what, how is it that I face the problems and what are some things perhaps I can learn about how God comes alongside and solves those particular problems? If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, we'll start with the 30th verse. This is how the scene opens up. Uh, p- previous part of the chapter in Mark 6, you read about how Jesus, sends, Jesus is rejected in the city of Nazareth. Um, by his own community. Um, Then we read about the death of John the Baptist. We read about Jesus sending out the disciples to sort of say, hey, now you guys have been watching me and learning from me. Now I want you to go out and do the job, sort of on-the-job training. Those are all the things that have happened before we open up the scene in the 30th verse. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, meaning Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Jesus and his disciples are looking for some solitude after a lot of work. I love this part of God that he even recognizes that even in our own lives, in the midst of busyness, that having some solitude, having some leisure, having a chance to eat is important. It's the way God created us. He talks about the Sabbath, the opportunity in our own lives to find some rest. I find that when I lose my rest, I lose my joy, I lose my creativity, I lose my perspective. I am prone to making poor decisions. That God's created us 
for rest. And he recognizes that in us. There's a principle here in and of, it, of itself. The idea of a holiday, the idea of rest, the idea of white space, quiet time is very, very important. For some of us, our personalities are wired in such a way, it's really hard for us to be able to find that time. And I would suggest that if you go back in the Old Testament, when you think about the Ten Commandments, these sort of key ten guidelines that became the bedrock, sort of the foundation of, uh, of guiding the children of Israel into this day, you know, we look at those Ten Commandments and the, the idea of keeping the Sabbath day holy is right up there with murder, adultery, and thievery. And yet sometimes I find that we are guilty of not having that time and space in our own lives. And so Jesus recognizes this in his own interns and he says, hey guys, you've been busy, you've been at work, you're all excited, they come back, they're all hyped up about all the cool things going on. He goes, come on guys, you haven't even had time to eat, let's go find a place. But as they find this particular place, as we read here in this particular scripture, the crowds follow them. If you've ever been to Israel, I know this church goes there often, but the Sea of Galilee is, it's not like an ocean in the sense that you can't see the other side. It's basically a big, big lake. And so when you're going from one part of the lake to the other part of the lake to the other, someone can just sit on the shore and observe. So the crowd saw this and they ran ahead and they met Jesus as they came ashore. And Jesus' response was not one of like, guys, I'm exhausted. I don't have time for you. You've got to give me some space. He looked upon them and had compassion on them and noticed them as a sheep without a shepherd. As a sidebar, one of the most wonderful books I read in the last year and a half is this wonderful book um, by a guy named Philip Keller. And it's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It was written like in 1970 or so. Small, short little book, maybe 120 some pages. And it's a story of a pastor who happens to also be a shepherd. And he has these sheep. And he basically unpacks the 23rd Psalm, not only through the eyes of of a pastor, but through the eyes of a shepherd. And I've profoundly enjoyed that book, especially going through the whole COVID thing. Because I was reminded of the fact that I'm a sheep and he's my shepherd. And I was taught through that book that he is consumed with his love and his protection and his provision for me, his sheep. One thing I read in that book was how overly consumed the shepherd was about the health of his sheep. And I would encourage you, if you want to have a good little summer read, grab one of those, grab it and uh, encourage it. And, And I would always say, don't read it in one setting, read it slowly and absorb it. But here's Jesus looking at this crowd And he makes the metaphor, they're like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're aimless, they're vulnerable, they're prone to poor decisions, they're prone to danger. If if a shepherd doesn't step in here, uh, these people will find themselves in trouble. And I think that's the way it is with my life. I think sometimes I I might be resilient, I might have my, uh, you know, my cognitive abilities or my my circle of friends or the various things that are my crutches of life. And and I think I can do life sometimes without God. And there's many times, I mean, I believe in God and we sometimes treat him as more like our insurance policy. Like, well, when I die, go to heaven. But in the meantime, I got problems here on this earth and I don't have time to just wait around all day long. I got to solve these problems. And that's the danger of being a sheep without a shepherd. Who's your shepherd? Who's my shepherd? Not just cognitively again, not just say, yeah, yeah, God's my shepherd, but is he truly my shepherd? Do I allow him to guide me and lead me um, in my particular life? So he looks upon these people and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And if you're a note taker, 
um, as we're going to have four short little points, as we talk about Jesus, the problem solver, the first point is this. In Jesus, every problem becomes an opportunity. In Jesus, every problem becomes an opportunity. Verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples, his interns, came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So there's a very obvious situation. They come up to Jesus, who's teaching, and they basically come up and, in many ways, whisper in his ear and say, Okay, it's time to wrap it up. It's time to dismiss the people. Imagine that happening here. And I was speaking, and we were all sitting here, and it's going, it's going on and on and on. The hour's getting late, getting hungry, you know, and some of the team comes up here and whispers, hey, let's, let's wrap it up, Stevan, because we've got to send people home. They're hungry, and uh, they're going to have to go find something to eat. And that was a very realistic problem. I mean, they're out in the fields. This is not like there's a restaurant on every corner. There's food trucks everywhere. We've got a problem on our hands, and as we will learn soon, there's a crowd of about fifteen to 20,000 people here. So, so the interns had a very, very logical solution to what they were observing. They were actually being mature, saying, we've got a situation, let's dismiss the people. So the day gets long, they have a solution, they come to Jesus, let's get rid of the people. But Jesus reacts differently. He sort of surprises them with his response. He says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Now, what's interesting is that there's a situation on hand. The disciples, the interns, approach it with great concern. He responds with great compassion. There's a big difference. Think about it in our own lives. We probably are very concerned about a lot of things in our world. There could be something you're concerned about your own life. There could be something going on in your family, in your community, at your place of work, in your city, in our country, around the world. We all have lots of opinions. We all have lots of concerns. You see something on the headlines, and you could say, we have lots of concerns. The difference between concern and compassion, concern usually is a conversation. Compassion has to do with actually doing something about it. So the disciples logically have a concern. Hungry people, we have no food, let them go. Jesus says, hungry people, we have no food, let's feed them. Now, what problem do you face in your life today where you have jumped already to a predetermined solution? Are you missing the opportunity to let Jesus solve that problem? Here's what I do. Again, I can't ever speak for you. I can only speak for myself. I'm faced with a problem, whatever the problem might be. And I jump to a predetermined solution to that problem. In fact, I'm proud of the fact that I can solve that problem so quickly. Maybe there's a situation, you've got an unexpected expense that's come up in your home, in your life. And you immediately have already figured out a solution. It might be, I need to get an extra job. I need to dip into savings. I need to ask my friend to borrow the money. Whatever the case is, you may already have a solution to that, logically. And you might be proud. For some of us, you're so smart that there's hardly a problem you face and you can't find a solution. In fact, people pay you a lot of money to solve problems for them. My father was a shrink, and he would sit there and listen to people's problems all day long. Poor man. Um, He died not too long ago, uh, relatively young, and I said, if I had to listen to people's problems all day long, I'd die early as well. 
the reality is they would come and pay him to say, here's my problem. And he would provide them some kind of an idea or a thought or solution. So when you think about that particular situation, in this situation that where they've come, but then Jesus responds with this really odd kind of, you, feed, you let, let us feed them, which is an odd response to an obvious problem that says, either Jesus is joking or he doesn't have a real good solution as to, or a real good idea of what the real problem is. I will default to my predetermined solutions sometimes. And here's my attitude. I will go to God in my prayer life and I want him to basically bless or endorse my solution. So, dear Lord, here's my problem. Here's what I think is a solution. If I could just get this new job, it will solve my problem. Lord, help me get this new job. That would be a very typical prayer that we would pray. Now, there's nothing wrong in that prayer. But in a sense, we've figured out that the solution to my problem is a new job. But he may come back and say, I've got another solution. Here's where we turn. Point number two. In Jesus, our little creates his much. In Jesus, our little creates as much. And they said to him, probably sarcastically, I pick up that tone in this, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, 200 denarii is about a, a, denarii is about a day's weight. So we're talking about, about 200 days worth of weight. So they say three quarters of a year's salary. They're going, so do we, you just want us to go and take this money, assuming they even had the money. Maybe they're just like jokingly like, Jesus, we're not walking around with that kind of cash. So, so uh, do you want us to just go out and, and spend three quarters of an annual salary and just go buy these people something to eat? Now, just think of it logistically. Imagine again 15,000, 20,000 people. This is why I think it's sarcastic. Because logically, it wasn't like you had some big you know, store around where you could go to a Costco and buy these big old bins of food or you could hire a bunch of caterers or food trucks to show up. I mean, they're out in the field, out of nowhere. They got 15,000, 20,000 people. And Jesus has just looked at them and says, you feed them. You go get them something to eat. And their response is, so you just want us to get some money and go buy them food? That's where you pick it up. Which is oftentimes my response to Jesus when he comes up with one of his solutions to my problem. I respond sarcastically. The reason I respond sarcastically is because, again, I'm defaulting to looking at the situation through my perspective. In their case, the perspective was the only solution is to go get these people eat, and we need money, and we need logistics, and we don't have it. So he says, and he said to them, well, then how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five, meaning five loaves and two fish. Woefully inadequate to the problem that they're facing. Again, you almost pick up a little sarcasm. Uh, we got a couple loaves of bread and some fish. Is that going to solve the problem, Jesus? Yeah, is that really going to solve the problem? 15,000, 20,000 people, you think you can do it? You pick that up a little bit. Then he commanded them, meaning Jesus, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing, broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. That's where we get our number of 15, 20,000 men, women, and children. Large crowd. So the scene here is he says, give me what you got. That's why the point is, in Jesus, our little creates his much. The interns possibly 
are surprised, to say the very least, at the very thing that they see is happening in their very, before their very eyes. So here's, here, unpack the, the reality of the situation. Insert yourself into the Bible stories as you read them. So now we've got the only people that are aware of the problem at this point is Jesus and a, a small group of disciples. So say maybe there's 10, 15 people that are aware of this conversation about the food. The 15, 20,000 people that are sitting all over the hills and in the back 40 you know, that are not aware of this conversation going on. The fact that there's even concern to be able to feed them, they're not even aware of it. They're aware of their hunger pains, but they're not aware of what conversation is going on. The interns are also very well aware of that they're woefully um, ill-equipped to solve this particular problem. And they're also very well aware that Jesus has a really crazy idea because he's asking them how much they have and they've demonstrated that this is all we've got. And then they see something miraculous happen. They say Jesus says, let's go ahead and get ready to feed them. Have them sit in groups of 50 and 100. Why are we sitting down in groups of 50 or 100? We only have these loaves and these fishes. I mean, we're going to feed them? I mean, we're creating some expectation here. Hey, guys, let's all sit down in groups of 50, 100. It's mealtime. They know this doesn't end well. Because the reality is... There's, a, there's an assumption that we're going to do something and we're incapable of doing it. And then they say Jesus takes his bread and his fish and he blesses it. He gives thanks to it. Then he starts handing it out. And most theologians will say that the people in the crowd had no idea that an amazing miracle just occurred. It wasn't like a pile of fish showed up and a pile of bread showed up and they're like, oh my gosh, where'd that come from? It wasn't like bread started raining in from the sky, fish started jumping out of the rivers and the feet landing in their laps, all those kind of things. All of a sudden, you can imagine the situation. You're sitting somewhere here in the back 40 and the person you're sitting next to says, man, are you hungry? Yeah, man, I'm hungry. Well, I got some bread. Where'd you get the bread? I don't know. The guy next to me gave it to me. Where'd he get it? I don't know. I guess somebody had it. I don't know. You want some? Yeah, sure. You want some fish, too? Oh, I love some fish. Okay, good. And then the guy next to him goes, hey, where'd you get that bread and fish? Well, I don't know. The guy next to me gave it to me. Well, do you have any extra? Yeah, I'll give you some bread and fish. A miracle was happening in the very midst of them without them even realizing a miracle was going on. Now, imagine what the disciples, the interns, that's you. Let's put you in the story. You're one of the interns. What are they seeing happening in their very eyes? So we notice some of the characteristics of how God solves problems. Again, the point, the second point, in Jesus, our little becomes his much. Let me just highlight a couple of things. Why? It's incredibly important for us to apply this to our own lives because every single one of us faces a problem. Now, for some, it's big. It's one of those complex, chaotic problems. For some, it's little. I don't think any one of us is facing the problem they're facing with. How am I going to feed 20,000 people this afternoon? But the reality is we face these, uh, these problems that seem completely impossible to solve. One thing is God always uses what's available. What do you have available? So you, let's, let's, let's make some up. So you've got a problem that you're created. There's a lot of bitterness inside you because of a, a family member that you know, betrayed you and hurt your feelings. An ex-husband, an ex-wife, a, a father, a mother... A son, daughter, maybe it's a business partner or something, but inside of you, you, you're just holding on to this, okay? And you recognize it's a problem, but you can't let it go. You've gone to therapy, you've tried everything, you've prayed about it a million times, it's just, uh, can't get rid of it. And you, you don't have the capacity, you don't have the compassion, you don't have the love, you, don't, you just don't. I don't care as many times as you wished it, you don't have it. 
God takes, what, God takes whatever we have available. Whatever little bit we have. What it might be. A couple loaves, a couple pieces of fish to feed 20,000 people? Makes no sense. I have to look at the situation and go, what little do I have to offer you, Lord? And I can be sarcastic when I give it to him. Like, really, you're going to do this? You, you're going to solve this problem with my ex-husband or my ex-wife or my father or my mother. You're going to solve this with this. With this. Go for it. It's not going to work, Jesus, but go for it. I mean, you're God. I'm not. That's how we talk. We, I mean, we may not say it. We think it. God is also a God of order, not chaos. If there's chaos in your life right now, maybe at your place of work, in your home, in your family, it doesn't mean you're being evil. It doesn't mean that you're some big heathen. It probably means that you've not invited him close enough into the situation. Whenever I'm in a situation when I notice a lot of chaos, with a family of five kids, all these grandkids and stuff, there's chaos. There are times it's intense. There are times there's, it's not just loud and kids screaming. It's, it's sometimes discussions can be intense. Maybe it's a place of work. I've been part of board meetings. I've been part of team meetings. And it's intense. It's weird. It's awkward. People are saying things. Feelings. You're feeling flush in your face. Your heart rate's going up. There's some chaos here. And you don't like it. Maybe you're coming up with solutions. God's a God of order. Sit down in groups of hundreds. Sit down in groups of 50. You know, this is important. Everybody sit down. Wait with expectation about what is God doing. So maybe if you're in the midst of chaos right now, rather than just lean in even harder, maybe it's time to pull back and say, I need to sit right now. Emotionally, I need to sit. Intellectually, I need to sit. I need to rest. I need to pull down. I need to stand down right now. Maybe it's in a meeting or it's family. Hey, guys, why don't we take a break right now? Hey, we all have some strong opinions about this. Why don't we take a moment and just give ourselves a break? Maybe take a moment and pray. Because right now there's a lot of chaos here, and that doesn't mean God's not around. It just means he's not at the center of the conversation. Third, the solution always satisfies When God solves a problem, the solution is satisfactory. When I solve a problem, the solution is not. Maybe it's temporarily. Isn't that the lure of sin? Every time I find myself falling into sin, it's because Satan has somehow convinced me that whatever I'm facing, that this solution he's provided me is going to solve the problem. And you know what? It does for just a little time. And then the problem comes back even worse. Whatever it might be. I pray often in my own personal prayer life, Lord, let me be suspicious of myself. Because naturally default, I will think that my opinion, my perspective, my ideas are the right ones. That I'm seeing this rightly. But perhaps I'm not. Perhaps I'm being blinded. His solution always satisfies. The last but not least is that his solution is always generous. God is a God of abundance, not scarcity. This particular passage of Scripture says that these 15,000, 20,000 people ate and were satisfied. This wasn't just it held them over until they got a real meal. When you invite the Lord in and he comes and solves our problems, even though you can be sarcastic, and even though we can be like, I don't know if this is going to work, Lord. We're watching with our very eyes this bread and this fish going on. We're watching in our very eyes God solving a problem. We may not even realize a miracle is occurring, but he's solving the problem, and it satisfies. 
And not only that, those disciples, those interns, what did they pick up after all this was done? Picked up those 12 baskets. Now, in that original language, the baskets are little lunch boxes. We're not talking about big old wicker baskets, you know, they're caught carrying them. This is their own personal little lunch box. Now, what kind of profound message was he sending them? They saw the story from beginning to end. The beginning was, Jesus, let's get rid of the people. We don't have enough food and resources to take care of this problem. And so let's get rid of them. He says, let's feed them. Jesus, with what? He goes, what do you have? We got some bread and some fish. Woefully inadequate. Fine. Tell them to sit down, give thanks, hand them out. A couple hours later, each disciple, each intern is sitting there holding their own little lunchbox. More than they had when they started. What kind of faith builder was that in their world? Again, you remember, the people in the back 40 had no idea this was going down. This was to reinforce to these interns, again, you and I in this story are the interns. It's to reinforce the fact that God's got it. If you're a note taker, let's keep going. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. Finally, he's dismissing them. Hey, disciples, team, get on the boat, head on across the lake. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against him, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, meant to pass them by. The long overdue rest that these disciples, these interns needed, was finally offered by Jesus. And he makes his disciples go to the other side, and then he seeks his own solitude time, that it was very common that he would spend a great amount of time with the Lord his own father. Again, a lesson for each and every one of us. How much time are we spending alone with our own father? He happens to be on the side of a hill, and if you, again, if you've ever been to Israel, this is very believable, that he, know, he can see from a distance his interns rowing across the sea in the middle of the night. But there's a strong wind that's facing them, and so as they're going across, not only are they facing this wind, But it's not only making it very difficult to make any progress, but they're also being easily thrown off course. And he decides then to go down and walk along the the water, walk on the water. And it says, and he he looks like he was going to pass them by. Most theologians say he wanted to be noticed. They wanted to see him. And the interesting thing is what we see here is that in this, and the point here, if you're note takers, in Jesus, our circumstances are always in his view. Here's what happens in my world. I go through problems, something might be whatever the case. Maybe it's a chronic problem, maybe it's a new one, maybe it's um, something that surprised me, maybe I was expecting it. But sometimes God doesn't seem that he's around. Sometimes I feel like he's busy doing other things, or he's out there blessing the real serious Christian followers, but maybe there's some sin in my life, maybe he's gotten discouraged, maybe he's gotten over. maybe he's just done with me. You know, or maybe he's forgotten about me. Maybe he's fallen asleep. Whatever the case, read the Psalms. David felt that way many a time. And so you sit there and you sort of feel like, Lord, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I got into this boat and I'm going to the other side. And I thought this would be a time of rest. But in fact, I'm dealing with a lot of headwind right now. In fact, it seems like the problem's getting worse than better. And not only that, it's beginning to, I'm exhausted and it's beginning to distract me. In other words, I'm getting off course in my marriage. I'm getting off course in my life. I'm losing my joy. I'm losing my peace. 
Just put yourself, again, you're the intern in this story. You put yourself in that situation. You're exhausted. You were exhausted when you got in the boat. And now you're even more exhausted. And guess what? He's not even around. And there's a tendency for us to be, begin in our own, own in, in, you know, perspective is to think he's, he's abandoned us. I don't have time this morning to unpack it, but I believe, for example, when Peter denied Jesus those three times at the crucifixion, that it wasn't because he was weak. It wasn't because he was, he was unafraid of a, of a combat. It was he was disillusioned. He'd become disillusioned with Jesus. Like, really? You're just going to walk off spineless after I'm willing to die for you? What's wrong with you? And maybe you're in that place today. You're disappointed or disillusioned because he didn't solve the cancer. He didn't heal the situation with your marriage. The job isn't getting any better. This is how those interns are feeling right now. But where is Jesus? He hasn't abandoned them at all. He's in communion with the Father and he's watching. And just at the right moment, he comes walking. And here's what happens in this as we bring this to a close. I'm asking you, sometimes when we struggle with our problems, many times we sense that we're not making any progress. We, just, we sense that we're getting off track and we're quick to give up. We become discouraged. We become afraid. What is the problem? Where is that problem taking you right now? The problem you're facing, where is it taking you right now? Are you making any progress? Are you exhausted of trying to solve the problem? Are you aware that Jesus has not lost sight of you, but he's making his way to you? To bring this to conclusion, the fourth and final point is, in Jesus, his presence provides us peace. In Jesus, his presence provides us peace. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. I would too. And cried out, oh my gosh, now it's getting worse. What is this? For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, guys. Hey, it's me, me. Don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples, understandably so, initially are afraid of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus is so overwhelming to us that our initial response is fear. The Bible says fear not 365 times. How many days of the year are there? 365. I wake up every day in fear. My default is fear. My natural inclination is fear. We live in a world of fear. Our economic backbone is based on fear. We pop pills because we're afraid. We drink drinks because we're afraid. We watch porn because we're afraid. We leave our husbands and our wives because we're afraid. We live in a state of fear. And we do all these things we can to control the fear. And some of us are really good at it. And some of us are not so good at it. But we live in a state of fear. And this is the disciples. Rightly so. They're in a bad time. They're in a bad situation. They're exhausted. They're distracted. They're off course. And then Jesus comes up. He walks on water. I mean, if you're a cynic and you go, really, this story about a guy walking on water and feeding people with a bunch of fish and loaves. Yeah, right. That's great children's story. Ain't reality. Deal with reality. I've got real problems. This isn't real. Well, I would challenge you and say, number one, Jesus is God. So God can do things. Makes no sense. This is why I'm saying the divinity of Christ can be intimidating. When God shows up and he's divine, he's not just your neighbor. It's him. It's God. 
The same God that said, let there be light, and there was light. The same God that rose from the dead. If you went back 100 years, so bring it even more practical. If you went back 100 years ago, and you were describing a cell phone to somebody. Zoom. Describe Zoom to your great-great-grandmother or grandfather. They would say, you're living in a Looney Tune. They'd say, I don't know what you're drinking. I don't know what you're eating. I don't know what you're seeing. But that doesn't exist. That's impossible. Describe walking in space. Describe a remote rover on Mars being controlled by an 18-year-old with a joystick somewhere here, probably around Washington. Describe the things that we've become so common, and we go, that's impossible. In God, nothing's impossible. For us, and he go, yeah, I can't walk on water. I can't take a few pieces of bread and fish and multiply them, but for him, it's possible. And again, our default is to be afraid. And as we bring this to a close, here's some things maybe perhaps think about. He approaches them. He invites himself into the boat. Immediately, they have peace of mind as well as peace of their circumstances. Has your problem captured your heart and imagination that, that it is becoming more difficult to recognize Jesus? Sometimes I make an idol out of my problem. My identity is wrapped around my problem. That's all I talk about. It's all my friends think about. It's the only thing I focus my attention on. Jesus, I don't have time for you right now. I mean, you're, you're not real. I mean, you're real, but you're not dealing with reality. I've got a problem right now. And I can't sit around and just wait and pray and do all the other stuff. I've got to deal with this problem right now. And my problem becomes an idol. And sometimes when he does show up, I don't recognize him because I'm expecting him to look different. But he shows up in the most divine ways that we sit there and go, Whoa! Because now it's me. It's me. Are you afraid? Perhaps we need to simply accept the presence of Jesus and invite him into our boat, into our problem. And again, it may start small, it may look small, but it's how we do it. What would your problem look like if Jesus was present? And this isn't an easy, like, formulaic Christianity stuff. Because I tendency have a disdain for formula Christianity. Just do these three things and you'll be a happy Christian and everything will work together. Life is messy. If we had the whole afternoon together, we could all come up here and share stories about how messy and raw life can be. I love reading the Psalms because David is that way with God. And I look at these stories and I see these interns and I see them doing life and they don't get it. It says here they still didn't understand the divinity of him. Like, okay, he did the 5,000 thing with the bread and the fish, and he's calming the waters. And they're still trying to figure it all out. And guess what? I'm still trying to figure it all out. Faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Spending time in his word every single day is sitting at the feet of Jesus going, okay, Lord, how do I do this? Does that mean your life is going to be perfectly fine and that every problem you have is going to have this wonderful, glorious solution and and it's always going to be easy? No. Hebrews um, 11 talks about men and women who went to their death having faith and never seeing the results of their faith. That's a tough one. Maybe the problem you're facing, you, you may not see the solution in your lifetime, but your children, your grandchildren will. We surrender our lives to him. 
And as we surrender our lives to Him, we trust Him to guide us. So as a quick reminder, and as we bring this to the close today, just remember, in Jesus, every problem becomes an opportunity. In Jesus, our little creates as much. In Jesus, our circumstances are always in His view. In Jesus, His presence provides us peace. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and um, we thank you for being who you are. Our little finite brains cannot and never will fully understand you. I, I don't understand the depth of your love, of your power, of your mercy. I don't understand sometimes why you do what you do. Seems to me sometimes you take a long time to do certain things and other things seems like you, you're, you're quick to jump on. There are times when I wish I was, I was you. Because there's some people I would love to just judge. A big old lightning bolt out of the sky. Get, that, get rid of that bad guy. That'd be sort of cool. And then there are times I don't understand your compassion. Why do you care so much about this person? There are times I wish you showed more compassion. There are times I wish you showed less. There are times I don't understand why I'm facing this problem. I've done everything right, Lord. Why are you punishing me? Why, why am I facing this problem? I thought that if I love you, I'll never have any problems. And yet my marriage is struggling. My kids are struggling. My finances are struggling. My health is struggling. Lord, life is full of problems. We live in a broken world. We understand that. And as we face these problems, Lord, and we have just a brief glimpse of just two stories in Scripture. I mean, there's thousands that we could pick from, but two stories in Scriptures where mankind, our brothers, these interns, faced these problems that were just overwhelming to them. And they thought they had some really good solutions. Or perhaps they were just mesmerized with fear. Can't do anything. Die in here. That's human, Lord. That's raw. And you love us in our humanness because you created us to be human. You created us with these emotions. But you also at the same time beg us to surrender. And I pray, Lord, that today all of us collectively, me included, would take whatever problems, whether it's a small little problem like that Dave Snowden talked about or the ones that are chronic things that are chaotic. We can't even figure out which way is up or down. We take whatever it is that we're facing, Lord, and we just simply say, God, you've got this. You've got this. Give me the faith for one more step. Let me row one more time. Let me surrender. And Lord, we know that you are present. We know that you provide solutions. And we have that faith in you and all that. Continue to be with this church, Lord. Be with every person here, whether online or in church. And I pray that their faith will grow today. That we are the body of Christ. That we collectively will grow. In Jesus' name, amen.